Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a special episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and I'm joined today by Francesca Wade, the author of an elegant deep dive of a book that considers how a small London square shaped the lives and careers of five women writers in the first half of the 20th century. Mecklenburg Square in Bloomsbury was home to the American poet and novelist H.D., the detective novelist and later translator Dorothy Sayers, the classicist and translator Jane Ellen Harrison, the historian and activist Eileen Power, and finally Virginia Woolf, who gives the book its title, Square Haunting, Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars. With Francesca Wade as our guide here, we'll meet each woman in turn. Thank you very much for joining us, Francesca. Thank you. The small square that we're talking about here is, as I mentioned, Mecklenburg Square. And I'm I'm wondering if you might start by kind of setting the scene for those unfamiliar with the address and its surroundings. It's mm. In its day, it would have been a kind of shorthand. Mm. Yeah, well, Mecklenburg Square is situated right out on the eastern edge of Bloomsbury, which, as an area that we know today, is pretty different, both in looks and in kind of atmosphere and feel from how it was both when the area was set out and when these women were living there. Bloomsbury was originally conceived um, by the original landowners as a sort of upper-middle-class suburb. The Duke of Bedford commissioned these grand houses to be built on his estate, um, but by the time they were all finished, any family who was rich enough to buy one wanted to live out in West London, which is much more fashionable. So the houses got kind of divided up into flats and the area became known as a kind of a place of transition. I think there's a, I quote Marjorie Allingham in the introduction who in the 1930s said that the area was somewhere where if you lived there, you were either on your way up or on your way down. And it was really a place where at this time single people who wanted to live on their own or with friends in flats or boarding houses could congregate and it very much had a literary reputation um, because the British Museum reading room was right in Bloomsbury's heart which was open to all to um, and read and study. And it's I mean it's clear that for all of the women uh, that you write about here in different ways and at different stages in in their lives, Mecklenburg Square, it represented a kind of experiment in selfhood, I suppose, and an alternative to that to a title to the book could be something along the lines of how should a woman be or even mm. how to be both. Yeah, what I was interested in in the conceit of the book was to examine all of these women's lives during the period that they happened to live in Mecklenburg Square, which began when I discovered that so many interesting characters had congregated in this one place, which at first when I discovered it seemed like it must be a complete coincidence. And what I wanted to do 
in the research for this book was, I suppose, ask why it was that they had all been drawn to this place and what they were kind of looking for there and what the place represented to each of them. And of the five that I write about, Eileen Power was the only one who lived there for more than a few years. But the more I researched, the more it seemed to me that each one of them moved there at a formative time in their lives in a period of transition or of kind of redefinition of themselves. So maybe maybe we'll get on to how they each what they were each sort of looking to do. but well, Certainly for all of the women who, even those who, who moved there in the early part of their career when they were really setting out, so you think of HD and Dorothy Sayers in particular, mm. let's start with HD and let's try to move chronologically as you mm. do, but it's a, there's a very clear sense that her time in the square, even though I think she was only there for two years, it mm. stayed with her. She had to resolve a kind of break free of or, or resolve a, a creative and personal crisis that was really set in motion in that time yeah absolutely um yeah hd was born in america and she came to london in 1911 she lives in lived in various addresses around london but these years in mecklenburg square were really crucial through her life to her kind of sense of herself in the 30s she had a long period of analysis with freud to deal with a kind of writer's block that she'd been experiencing and he told her that he thought that these years during the first world war when she'd happened to have been living in Mecklenburg Square, um, were key to these personal tangles that she was struggling with. And he urged her to return to writing a novel that she'd been writing on and off over the last decade, um, which explored everything that happened in the square and in the years just before and after she moved there. Um, So she arrived there during the First World War in 1916. Quite soon after they moved in, her husband, Richard Aldington, was called up um, and had to go away to fight. So she was left there on her own. And when he came back, he um, was having an affair with the woman who lived upstairs called Arabella York. So she was in this very difficult position of having to see him and having, but also having to see him go upstairs and not really want to spend time with her. She was in a kind of personal crisis with her own writing she kept sort of tearing up the poems that she was working on she was really in a state of transition I think in within her poetry as well her name HD was given to her by Ezra Pound um, who she'd briefly been engaged to in America and who really seized on some of her early verses as representative of this movement imagism that he was kind of championing. He really admired them for their kind of clarity and directness and their focus on kind of moments of natural beauty. But during the war, HD started writing, started translating from ancient Greek and started focusing on particularly the female choruses of Euripides, who are often kind of standing by powerless while they watch men be destroyed at war. And I think it's a kind of powerful comment on the personal crisis that she was experiencing in this year. And this thing of trying to find a voice that is true to the woman that she is and the woman that she wants to be and the society that she wants to be a part of, all of that. I mean, I suppose it would be remiss of me not to point out that you've also, as well as this wonderful book, you've also written an introduction to a book published by the TLS just now. We've got this imprint. Um, And the book is called Genius in Ink, Virginia Woolf on How to Read. And it's a collection of her reviews and essays for the TLS. So it's worth mentioning, not only because reading those pieces um, by Wolfe on George Eliot and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Charlotte Bronte, you see Wolfe wrestling with many of the ideas that that you go over and bring to the fore in, in your 
book, but also because you mentioned there how she, how Wolf wrestled with this, I think she called it, or you called it a phantom mm. voice, the expectation yeah. that in her writing and her reviewing she would be womanly. Yeah, well, Wolf is in a, a kind of guiding spirit to the book in a way because her book, A Room of One's Own, was very formative for me, both kind of personally and also in the way that I came to conceive of what might have brought all these women to Mecklenburg Square. And Room of One's Own is partly a, a literal statement. Wolf says that for a woman who wants to be a writer, you need £500 a year and a room of your own. Um, but the room, as well as being a physical reminder that you need to write, you need space, you need not to be interrupted. It's also a, a metaphor, I guess, for um, for being taken seriously and for having these... She's asking what conditions you need in order to fulfil your creative potential and I think that's what all of the women in this book were really asking when they moved to the square and when they set up their lives there and when they thought about who they wanted to share it with or how they wanted to decorate or what sort of work they wanted to do there and I think for HD those questions were incredibly important because she had always been sort of defined by other people, people around her, particularly by men. I mean, from quite a young age, Ezra Pound really took her under his wing, which was exciting, informative and important, but also she came to find increasingly stifling. Um, she later wrote that she you know, she had to sort of get away from him. She knew that if she'd married him when they were quite young, she would never have been able to become a writer herself. And I think this is these are the questions that she was going over and over in the novels that in this cycle of novels that she wrote through her life which culminated in 1960 the year before she died she finally published a version of this ongoing novel the rest she she wrote destroy on the manuscripts although they did survive and in fact have subsequently since her death been published so you can see how the story kind of developed and the different emphases she put over the years but the crux of this final novel that she published in 1960 bid me to live is this disagreement she had with dh lawrence kind of rooted in the months when he came to stay with her in mecklenburg square the book ends by her writing a letter to this character who's clearly based on Lawrence and they've clearly had an argument where he's essentially told her that women should only write about women's experiences. They shouldn't try to speak for men or speak universally. And she writes a really moving, powerful letter back, which in fact has some kind of linguistic echoes with The Room of One's Own, where she says, you know, in order to be free, I have to be able to write as I want and I can't be constrained by what anyone wants of me or what expects me to be and I think that is kind of emblematic of what all of these women in very different ways were looking for. D.H. Lawrence really sort of stalks through the book Mm. and and stalks the characters with his man, man is man and woman is woman line. There's a chapter on Dorothy Sayers comes after HD and in that one you really, it really emphasises the theme that does run through all five of the lives, the £500 that that Mm. Virginia Woolf mentions. So it's that of money and the extent to to which any independence is is contingent on personal income. Mm. Sayers, again, she was only in Mecklenburg Square for a year. It was a particularly Mm. pivotal one in terms of the realisation, I think, that she came to. Yeah, it was the year after she'd graduated from university. She was in the first cohort of women to be allowed to graduate from Oxford University, where she'd studied before that. Women could take exams, but they weren't given degrees. Um, But in 1920, 100 years ago this year, the rules were changed. So Dorothy Sayers managed to get herself a place in the first ceremony. Um, So she was kind of coming to London at this time when sort of on paper women could 
do anything and she and her friends talked really excitedly about the kind of careers that they could have um she knew that she wanted to write a lot of her friends were going into teaching and she had a brief stint as a teacher that was the kind of accepted profession for a sort of educated middle class woman but she knew that she didn't want to do that permanently um so moving to london from her for her was a real kind of declaration of the sort of person she wanted to be and life she wanted to lead. Um, and she writes home very excitedly to her parents about this room that she's got in Mecklenburg Square and how everything is is set up for her to go to British Museum on the weekends to um, to study. And all she really has to do is um, is make enough money for the rent. So she takes on various sort of freelance translation work. She does eventually kind of capitulate and take on some kind of supply teaching but she's always trying she her parents um, who are very generous and supportive do help her out but um, with money but eventually they sort of suggest maybe you know if if you really want to be independent maybe you should think about you know getting a good job and for keeping the writing as a hobby but she's absolutely insistent that if she can just kind of finish her novel she'll have made every effort to see what she can do and she she um, was right she, and she was the right. novel that she started when she lived there became well it was her first yeah. uh, Lord Peter Whimsey book yeah it's an amazing I think example of determination and and in a way self-confidence although during this year she also was privately I think not particularly confident she had a difficult relationship with an older writer who in fact was a friend of HD's as well who had had some success he was quite well connected he knew a lot of writers um, and I think meeting him must have been sort of exciting for Sayers because he seemed to have in in lots of ways the life that she wanted Um, but he was very dismissive of her work she wrote quite sort of ruefully to her parents that he likes art with a capital A and she was writing you know detective novels and she always believed very firmly that the detective genre was important because it's democratic and um, and it's popular and she didn't think there should be any distinction between literary and and popular books and she thought the detective novel there was no reason why it shouldn't be a vehicle for excellent writing and for moral questioning as um, well as making her the, the all-important yeah money as to well go as <laughs> potentially being a bestseller but he really had no time for that well you mentioned John Kurnos there and he sort of as you said he ties some of the characters together some of the women did know each other though mostly they didn't mm. I mean you must have felt such a <laughs> like a researcher's zing when mm. the lives did overlap in often quite meaningful ways yeah I think so I mean I I never saw it as a problem that the women weren't you know a group of friends it would have been a very different book I think if they were and it's not exactly a portrait of a Bloomsbury group in any way or a, or a milieu because they were all moving in different circles but there were some I was always excited when I found a kind of social connection and sometimes they were <laughs> very significant ones there's a really good one where Eileen Powers has just well married the love of her life I suppose mm. to, to simplify it there yeah. but um, one of her friends describes it as this uh, a marriage like Lord Peter Wimsey yes. and Harriet Bain. <laughs> that was one of my favourite things because my sort of conclusion of the Dorothy Sayers chapter is that she never really found the kind of marriage of equals that she was looking for but but what she did was was write it so in her her novel Strong Poison introduces this new character called Harriet Vane who bears quite a lot of similarity to Dorothy Sayers herself and the question that continues throughout the series is whether and how Harriet can 
marry Lord Peter Whimsey, the detective, without suffering a loss of her own kind of dignity and independence. And so um, Sayers, through her the latter part of her career, was really asking, you know, how can women combine she um, emotional and intellectual fulfillment? And I think that was a question that she never quite managed to answer in her own life, but found a way to do it in fiction. And this, and this was a question I think that all of my subjects were asking in very different ways. And Eileen Power, who's an economic historian, was always pretty anti-marriage. She writes some amazing letters to her sort of best friend in the um, early 1900s when a lot of her university cohort are going off and getting married and having babies. And she writes to say how bitter she is because she says the wife should, is algebraically indicated by a negative. And, you know, um, she didn't think that women should require a relationship in order to feel whole. Um, but much later in life, she did meet or she did marry a man who she'd known and worked with for some years. And it seems that their relationship was everything that that these women were looking for, totally supportive um, and loving and you know mutually equal partnership. And when she told one of her colleagues about it, his daughters raised a spontaneous toast to Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane. Which whose is, relationship was postponed for a number of books until they mm. could sort of come together as equals, the ever-elusive yeah. idea of, of, of an intellectual and bodily union, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you see them them negotiating how they can come together in this you know, in traditional institution of marriage that has so many power dynamics and connotations attached to it that you know, whether it's possible to invent that anew and invent a form of relationship that will allow... Harriet to be a writer as she is and to um, continue to earn a living and and not to feel obligated to her husband which also is made more complicated by the fact that his excellent detecting skills saved her from um, from prison and the gallows. So there's that sense of indebtedness. She does feel indebted to him. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. With Eileen Powers, I'm embarrassed to say I, I knew next to nothing about her. And I think particularly if, if you were educated in this country, in Britain, mm. which, which I wasn't, people owe a tremendous debt to her, especially, especially women. Mm. If you could just sort of tell us a bit about what she did to sort mm. of, well, attempt to over, overhaul the education system. Mm. Eileen Farrow is such a fascinating character who I didn't know anything about really before I started researching the book. There's been a great biography of her by Maxine Berg, but she isn't a household name in the way that she should be. Um, she studied at Cambridge, um, studied history, and medieval history, and at the time that she moved to Mecklenburg Square, she'd been given a job at the London School of Economics, which was a relatively new university at that time, which was quite left-wing and co-educational, and um, she joined a faculty full of um, pretty radical colleagues who were, a lot of them were involved in the Labour Party, which was pretty new at the time as well, and were really interested in studying the past, but really through the lens of the present. Um, And so she lived and worked there through the 20s and 30s, which was, you know, against the backdrop of political turmoil and change. And she was very involved in with the League of Nations and with the kind of internationalist movements. But while some of her friends and colleagues were kind of standing for parliament and so on, she wanted to change society in a slightly different way. And she very firmly believed that the way to ensure a kind of lasting peace for the future was through education. Um, and she she believed that children needed to see themselves as citizens of the world. I mean, it's while I was researching this book, that phrase came up because mm. of Theresa May. And I mean, it was incredibly resonant. She actually uses it in one of her lectures where she says, you know, we must educate our children to be citizens of the world and we must teach them history that shows the kind of common contribution of all people from all over the world to you know, civilization. Um, we we should focus not on wars and on things that have divided us, but on you know what we all have in common. And she insisted that you shouldn't teach British history in isolation because it instills a kind of nationalist fervor that is you know that <laughs> is only going to lead to the the kind of politics that she was witnessing. She also travelled a lot. She spent a year travelling around the world on a um, fellowship, um, which she got in 1920 just before she came to the square and she was particularly interested in China which over the 30s was was at war with Japan I think she felt that people in this country weren't paying enough attention to the kind of um, conflicts happening across the world so her pacifist and internationalist work I think really resonates today. And you see obviously the chiming with Three Guineas, mm. uh, Virginia Woolf's yeah, seminal essay. Yeah, has no country. She's exactly on, mm. on her writing on, on patriotism and then that Citizens of the World line, which Jane Ellen Harrison used as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, who also obviously is another one of your women who who, who lived in the square. Um, she 
I mean, there are so many excellent secondary characters in your book as well. And Hope Murley's, who, who's obviously mm. a fascinating woman yeah. and writer in her own right, who is also having a bit of a resurgence, yeah. uh, thankfully now, was her partner. Jane Ellen Harrison is a interesting case because whereas the other women that we've spoken about so far gravitated towards the square in kind of a hope of rebranding themselves or, or setting themselves out earlier in life. Yeah. Harrison was, she was in her 70s. Yeah. And she'd yeah. done so much radical stuff already that someone like Eileen Power was sort of standing on her shoulders. Yes, absolutely. Harrison is such an amazing character for exactly that reason. I mean, I said I think all of the women came here at a time of when they were kind of defining who they were. And yeah, for the others, that was really because they didn't quite know who they were yet. But for Harrison, she had lived a very full and active life. Um, she was a generation older also than the other women in this book. She was born in 1850 and she had been one of the very first students, at, women students at Cambridge. But after she left university, she found it very difficult to get an academic job. She was turned down for lots of posts and some openly admitted that it was because she was a woman. So it wasn't until she was um, in her 50s that she was invited back to Newnham to take up a position there and that's when finally she had time and space to start writing these incredible works of kind of hybrid sort of classical archaeology. She looked at ancient religion in particular and she came up with these amazing theories about how the kind of Homeric depictions of um, the Greek gods actually overrode earlier cult practices which were centred on the worship of women. So, I mean, we talk about the kind of writing women back into history and you know what Wolf says about in a room of one's own about the way that women's lives are almost absent from from history and the way that you know male historians tend to write it but um jane harrison was you know was literally um putting them back of a piece with hd who you mentioned before yeah and jane, um, wolf and hd were both whether directly or indirectly um influenced by harrison very much wolf knew her a little bit she met her and um saw her a little bit towards the end of her life and um, Harrison is invoked at the start of a room of one's own as an example of um, of women who have managed to make the kind of intellectual life that Wolf is talking about. But HD, after later in life also, um, her poetry really turned towards exploring the inner lives of heroines from Greek mythology who seem kind of stuck in other people's stories. And I think that's very much a similar process to what to what Harrison was trying to do. All of that work is sort of what I was hoping to do in the book, in a way, to put together these lives which, well, especially people like Harrison and Power, aren't necessarily well-known. And you can see as well Harrison being, as you mentioned, a generation older than the, than the other subjects the kind of the the limits that she that she came up again were just that bit closer to where she was so just mm. thinking about her relationship with with Hope Murley's mm. um they had this <laughs> really interesting dynamic involving a bear <laughs> they did <laughs> which you might like to explain a little bit because i mean i when i saw a photo i think the photograph in the book comes before you discuss the bear dynamic and there's mm. this photo of, of Hope and, and Jane and Harrison holding this cuddly yeah, toy in the bear. Yeah, I still haven't worked out entirely what's going on in that photo. It's a sort of a mysterious photo of a man that they're holding up as well. So Hope Merleys was a, was one of Harrison's students at Newnham. She was a contemporary with Wolf and they left Cambridge together 
1922 and moved to Paris, where they had visited a few times over the years to learn Russian. And they came to Bloomsbury together in 1926. Their relationship is one, it's a difficult one to talk about, I suppose, because like many kind of same-sex relationships of this time, the language used about them is often not particularly explicit. I mean, this was still a time when women's relationships with women were not, you know, were frowned upon and you could be pretty socially outcast for them and they they weren't very explicit about it. Looking through the archive, um, it's clear the kind of immense devotion that they felt for each other and these sort of private languages that they had to communicate um, often involving this um, this teddy bear, which a group of Harrison students had given her, um, and he became this kind of emblem for their relationship, this sort of surrogate husband. They used to write letters to each other where they called themselves his older and younger wife, and <laughs> they kind of mediated their own sort of unspoken relationship through the <laughs> prism of this bear. And Hope kept a whole scrapbook, which you can see at the library at Newnham, where she kind of records facts about the bear and what he's been up to. And he takes on all these kind of foibles, which they sort of mock together. He's an anti-suffragist and he's, <laughs> you know, he's a very old school. Um, he doesn't really think that their work is very interesting. He he's sort of comes to represent the establishment that yeah. Harrison herself was really up against, particularly in Cambridge. Her theories were were seen as a real threat to the kind of quite conservative classical scholarship that was current at the time. And in a way, I mean, it's a small skip from that odd creative <laughs> episode to Virginia Woolf, in a sense. her she's, she's the final subject that you come to, though she gives the book its name. A Room of One's Own Lies, as you said, behind everything, really. Her life, by the time she moves to Mecklenburg Square, represents the kind of culmination of all of this. And yet, when you think of Virginia Woolf and her final years, you tend to think of Virginia Woolf in Sussex. Mm. Um, and she only had this address for, for one year, really. Why was it yeah. such a, an important time for her, this Mecklenburg Square yeah. time? Well, I mean, Wolf has presented different problems to the others um, in writing about her because, of course, so much has been written about her already and also there's so, so much material. I mean, we have her letters and her diaries um, and all of her writing in ways that, you know, Harrison and Power in particular, their papers were often destroyed and there's much less to work with whereas Wolf the problem is very much the other way but I did feel that there was new things to say about this period of Wolf's life and that actually it was a really important and in kind of invigorating period that deserved attention of its own um, I think it's often seen you know we know that she committed suicide in March 1941 she moved into the square in September 1939 so I think this year is often read as kind of the year before her suicide but actually for her she was embarking on new projects um, some of which she finished and some of which she didn't she was working against the backdrop of war which um, brought back to her a lot of uh, memories of the first world war in particular which had um, she'd found extremely traumatic um, and this kind of threat of death all around her also sent her back to thinking about her childhood also the very fact of moving house she actually moved to Mecklenburg Square from Tavistock Square around the corner because there were building works on this hotel being built up, uh, opposite which just got so impossible to live with that they needed to find somewhere else quickly that sort of 
unexpected change of address for her set her thinking to thinking about all of the houses that she'd lived in lived in through her life Um, and she always found houses significant and important which goes right back to the very first house move she did which is sort of the emblem for the book in a way it was her moving from her family home at Hyde Park Gate in Kensington where she wasn't really allowed to she wasn't particularly encouraged she was encouraged to read by her father but it wasn't expected that she would write or um or have a career of her own and she and her sister were very much trained to to go out to parties and meet eligible suitors and you know give them tea in the drawing room um, but after their parents died she and her siblings moved to Gordon Square in Bloomsbury and they decided that everything was going to be different they were going to paint the walls and have friends over and that's where she started writing her very first pieces um, which her, I think her second piece was for the TLS and it was then the support of the TLS that the commissions kept coming and she was so excited to receive her pay slips and to feel that she was free and independent and earning and by the time by the time she then comes to Mecklenburg Square it's a very different Bloomsbury to the Bloomsbury that she started out yeah. in both personally and just realistically Bloomsbury had changed it was a different atmosphere yeah. though still obviously connected to that radical mm. nurse but there's a very real sense of of an ending even though she didn't yeah. foresee her own death and as you say you know mm. she she felt very much alive and like she was buzzing with ideas yeah. but a lot had changed um, I mean a lot of Several of her friends had died. I mean, Lytton, Lytton Strait, she had died. and um, Roger um, Fry, Roger whose Fry, biography exactly. she'd worked on. Um, and their friend Mark Gertler committed suicide just before they moved in and Leonard Wolfe's mother died. And her nephew, um, Julian Bell, had died in the Spanish Civil War. So I think she definitely felt that you know, old Bloomsbury was not really together anymore. Um, and her friends who often had been conscientious objectors in the First World War now seemed a bit more resigned really to the second conflict, whereas she was still totally horrified by war, just like Eileen Power. I mean, a lot of her own feelings had changed. She, when, when she and her siblings moved to Bloomsbury, although they wanted everything to be very different, they definitely didn't question that they would still have servants <laughs> in their house, um, for example. Yeah. Um, but by this point in her life, she was reflecting on that a lot more I think and I'm not sure she's always given credit for, for I think it's, how uncomfortable she was beginning to feel about um, people now do say, accuse Virginia Woolf of being elitist and people in her time were beginning to accuse her of that as well and she she was aware that it was contradictory to you know to espouse left-wing values and feminism and say you know every woman should have a room of her own when she knew that her own freedom really depended on having lower class women working and living within her house. It's true, I mean you point it out yourself that if there's a small snag in this selection of subjects, it's that they are all of a kind in a sense and their mm. independence is, is you know predicated not only on financial independence but they all do have house help, you know, servants mm. or whatever. Really it's only by the time we come to Virginia Woolf that you see that, I mean you would expect a certain ambivalence from Woolf I suppose, but by yeah. this phase in her life she's really making taking steps to, to do away with that hypocrisy. Yeah, exactly. And she it's interesting to see her really kind of grappling with it. And on the one hand, she is she doesn't want to be hypocritical and she she also wants the peace and quiet, I guess, of living in a house without servants. She also doesn't want to actually do the cleaning. Mm. Um so you see her and the town and country divide is also interesting in that respect because this year they were living most of the time in their um, house in Sussex and coming up to Mecklenburg Square for part of the week and in Mecklenburg Square they had a 
uh, live-in servant and they also had the Hogarth Press in the house so their house there was very much a workplace and full of people sort of clattering around whereas Sussex they had a housekeeper who came in for part of the day then went home and they um, I think she even describes it as this sort of private fantasy of sort of of, of independence. I think but. she writes to a friend or, or someone about arriving uh, arriving in Rodmel at the house and mm. just feeling elated at the idea of having a a chop, a lamb chop, and a bag yeah, <laughs> ready yeah. to go to put her own <laughs> yeah, meal on. Yeah, she says that of that is freedom. Yeah, no, I mean it's really contradictory and complicated, and she's a utterly complicated but you know always fascinating yeah. character and. It's amazing to spend time, in particularly reading her diaries, I think, to see her self-questioning and throwing out ideas and, and see how how much she is always interrogating herself, even if she's not always putting the principles into action, she's thinking about it. A final question then before I let you go. You mentioned before uh, it's it's pretty much bang on 100 years since the Sex Disqualification Removal Act and it's quite telling that the word removal had to be kind of shoehorned into that there in case anyone missed the point. But it's striking how how pertinent, how contemporary much of the deliberating, the debating of the ideas that you've you've written about feels. Did it feel like a historical project when you were working on this or did you you Mm. constantly feel the book kind of thrusting into the contemporary Mm. speaking to us? Yeah, I did. I wasn't necessarily expecting that I don't think but the more I learned about these women the more I did feel they were speaking to to you know to contemporary people and a lot of the questions that they're asking about what sort of conditions particularly women but really everyone needs in order to not only to be writers but to live fulfilled lives to you know to live as they want how to arrange your life what do you need? Do you need a supportive relationship? You know, what kind of compromises are you willing or able to to take on in order to to do the work that you want to do and feel? Do we to believe do? in positive discrimination? <laughs> the the status of in those days it was the yeah. United the League of Nations, but now we can talk about the United Nations in mm. the same terms. Yeah, yeah. How do we situate ourselves? You know, in relation to each other and to the wider world. I think yeah, it was moving actually to see them grappling with this in their in their most private writing as well as in their public pronouncements well it's an excellent book thank you very much for well for writing it um and thanks also for coming (laughs) in to take the time to talk to me square haunting five women freedom and london between the wars and genius and ink virginia wolf on how to read are both out now Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.